Bible. I'll give you a hint. It's not an Israelite. It's, in fact, an Egyptian. Someone said it. It's an Egyptian slave woman named Hagar. Is the first person in the Bible to give God a name. And the name that she gives him is El Roy. El Roy. And to understand what the name is, we really need to get into Hagar's story and what's going on with Abram and Sarah in Genesis 15 and 16. If you've got your Bibles, there's some in the chairs in front of you if you don't have one or you've got one on your phones, uh, get out your Bibles. We're going to be looking through a lot of Scripture today and understanding why she gives God the name El Roy. Uh, one of the things that has become one of my customs as, as preacher is every year, uh, today we're sending our kids down to camp. And, and as we send our kids to our third through eighth graders, go down to Camp Rock Creek this afternoon, uh, and they'll be there throughout this week. Next Sunday, uh, our high schoolers will leave and go to Soul Quest up in York. Uh, and, and it's become one of my customs to preach on the themes of camp. And each year, I preach on the themes of camp so that you'll know what what part of scripture, what part of faith is being impressed on the kids at Northwest while they're away at camp, but also uh, so that when you pick them up and they're too tired to tell you anything about what they've learned, you've already got a head start. And the other thing that, that I hope that this does is I hope that all of our members this week are praying that the message that you're about to receive today is impressed on the hearts and minds of our children. That throughout this week, that God blesses them with the lessons that they'll be learning and the relationships that they'll be building. So we're beginning the story of Hagar in Genesis chapter 15, uh, which says this. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall be your offspring. And Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. 
In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land. From the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. He says their land will be your land. And so we need to understand that God has made this promise to Abram. And he comes to Abram and he says, listen, what, what can I give you, Abram? And he says, I... I how can you give me anything? I don't even have a son. I don't have an heir. I don't have anyone that I can give my inheritance to. This is the great blessing that I desire, God, and I don't have it. My inheritance will pass to this servant that I will make like an adopted son to me and who will get my inheritance, but it's not the son that I've prayed for, that I desire. God says, I promise you this. And he tells him to look at the stars. And Abram looks at the stars and he says, if you can count them, that's how many descendants you're going to have. And then he makes this covenant with Abram. And the covenant that he makes is really unusual to us, where he cuts these animals into half and he separates the halves of the animals. Uh, but this is an ancient Near Eastern custom. And the way that this covenant is being made is such that you cut the animals in half and you separate them so that there is an aisle between them. And you make an agreement with the other part of the party. And you say, listen, I make a covenant to you that I will keep my part of this bargain. And the other party says, I make a covenant to you that I will keep my side of this bargain. And then they both pass through the cut animals. And what they are saying in doing so is, and if I fail to keep my side of this agreement, then may I end up like these animals we pass through today. It's a serious covenant. It's an oath that's made under threat of punishment of death, that you would face the same end as these animals, and you do that. And what's interesting about the covenant that Abram makes with God is this, is that God tells him, make the path that we can walk down the aisle and have this covenant with one another, that we will keep this covenant no matter what. And then Abram gets tired, and Abram gets this vision and in the midst of all of this, a fire pot with, with smoke and fire comes out and, and floats through the animals. And you're aware that this is the presence of God. And that God's presence is passing through and making a covenant with Abram that I will keep my part of this deal. And if I don't, then may I end up like these animals. That's how serious God is about this covenant. And then Abram doesn't pass through. Abram doesn't go through. And, and it seems to me that this is one of the occasions where God is saying to his people, listen, I'm going to keep this covenant so faithfully that it doesn't even require you doing your part because I'm going to be faithful no matter what. I'm aware of your shortcomings. I'm aware of your struggles. I know the difficulties that you face in being faithful to me, but whether you do or not, you need to know that I will always be faithful to the promises that I make you. And so the presence of God passes through and makes this covenant to Abram, and it doesn't even require Abram to do his part in the making of the covenant. 
God's saying, I'm going to make you into this great nation and make you the, the owners and occupants of this promised land. And I'm going to, in another place, he tells Abram, it makes him the third promise, which is, and through your descendants, I will make you a blessing to all the nations of the earth. You're going to take all the other people and bring them uh, through you into my family. And he makes these promises and he makes this incredible covenant. And all of this happens in Genesis chapter 15. And you would think that it would make such an impression on Abram that he would remain faithful to God and expect that God will be faithful to him. Now, Genesis 16 continues. And it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram, after having been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, took his wife, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He then slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now she knows that she's pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. And Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. And then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress, submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son, and shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave him the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Okay, admittedly, to our modern sensibilities, this story is deeply troubling. It's unusual. We don't live in a world with that practices the, the having of multiple wives. We don't live in a world that has uh, slavery like this. Uh, we don't live in a world uh, where doing many of the things that are going on in Abram's family happen in our world. Uh, but even in Abram's world, some of what's going on here is deeply, deeply problematic. And it's that side of it that I really want us to kind of be talking about and thinking about and reflecting on this morning. 
Because what we know from Genesis 15 is that God makes this incredible covenant with Abram and says, listen, I'm going to make your descendants as plentiful as the stars in the sky. And this is before light pollution and everything else that keeps us from only being able to see a few stars. If you've ever been out in the woods and really in the wilderness and off the grid, and you've looked up at the stars, and and don't you just find yourself thinking, I had no idea. I had no idea that there were this many stars. For me, it was in the rainforest of Guyana when I was there at camp, and I would look up, and you could look in the space between stars, and if you look for a moment, more stars appear in those moments. And that's what Abraham, Abram is experiencing in this moment. God says, I'm going to give you that many descendants. They'll just keep growing and growing. And he makes this covenant with him. And he says, just trust me. I'll be so faithful that I'll fulfill the whole covenant on my own. And immediately you go to the next verse. And Abram and Sarai have become impatient with God's timing. And we can all relate to that. We can all relate to those times when we pray for something and we ask God, God, please deliver me from this suffering. Please bring me into this time of deliverance where things are better. And and God doesn't do it in the timeline that we wish he would do it. And we become impatient. And what we want to do in those moments is exactly what Abram and Sarai did. Well, fine, God, if you won't take care of this, we will. If you can't bring your promise into being, then we'll take matters into our own hands. And they come up with this plan that Abram's going to take one of Sarai's servant women, Hagar, a foreign Egyptian slave woman, will become his second wife. And that through her, she will bear Abram's sons and then grow this family into many descendants. And Abram will have what he's always wanted. So that's the plan. So Abraham marries Hagar, uh, and the, she immediately becomes pregnant in the story. And, and as soon as she becomes pregnant, she begins to look down on Sarai. And she begins to, to think, there's a power imbalance now. And this isn't the only story in Genesis where, where the wife that is producing the most children feels like she should have the most honor in the family. In fact, that's often assumed in these stories. And so when she becomes pregnant, it's clear that she's the wife of favor and she now should be held in the highest standing. And there's this serious power imbalance in Abram's family. Because Sarai is thinking, I don't like the idea of my former slave woman, who's now uh, my husband's wife, looking down on me because she's pregnant and I'm not. She goes to Abram and she says, this is all your fault. And Abram has to just feel like his, this has to be really disorienting to Abram. What? I thought this was the plan. The plan wasn't for her to look down on me and dishonor me further because this is is happening. And and Abram says, listen, she's your servant. Do with her what you want. He doesn't say, she's my wife with my child, and and we need to work this out. He says, it's your servant, your problem. You do whatever you think is best. Sarai then goes and begins mistreating Hagar. And we don't get the details of this mistreatment, but what we know is that Hagar's response to this treatment and mistreatment by Sarai is that she decides, I would rather, while pregnant, wander across a wilderness to try and find a way to survive on my own than stay here undergoing this kind of mistreatment, this kind of abuse. And, and this is, I, I cannot live this way. I'm out of here. And so Hagar leaves, and she's fleeing the mistreatment that she's receiving. 
And, and we need to make sure that as we're reading this story today, that we read this in the same way that we read other Old Testament stories where God is using flawed and at times deeply flawed people to bring his plan into being. And it's often when people take their timing, their wishes, their plans over and against God's timing and God's wishes and God's plans that they find themselves making the biggest mistakes. So Sarah and Abram abuse and mistreat the servant woman and the servant woman finds herself in the wilderness because she'd rather be out there risking her life than living with them in the way that she's been treating because she hasn't been treated like a human at all. She's been treated like a thing that they own to produce something that they desired. And when you start treating people like property and not like humans, you've always got a problem. And when Hagar has been thrown out like yesterday's trash is when God shows up in the wilderness. And he says to Hagar, Hagar, where did you come from and where are you going? And he already knows. He knows where she's been and he knows where she's going. And she tells him, my mistress Sarah has been mistreating me and so now I'm headed, I'm headed back to wherever. And it appears that she's at this well near a, a town called Shur that's just east of kind of lower Egypt, that she's headed back to where she's from. She's an Egyptian, and it looks like she's trying to get back to Egypt, that she's rejecting where her life has taken her and trying to get back from where she started, but she's doing it at great risk. And God sees her at the well, and he says to her this, this great blessing. He says to her, your son that you're going to bear is going to be named Ishmael. The name Ishmael means, when translated, God hears me. God hears me. And so as she's in the wilderness, it appears that she's been praying. And I don't know if she's been praying to the Egyptian gods, or I don't know if she's been praying to Yahweh, but the God who hears her shows up. And he tells her, you're going to have a son, and you can name him God Hears You, Ishmael. And this son is going to be a great nation filled with many descendants, more than you will ever be able to count. Wait, does that sound familiar? We often think about how Isaac is the child of promise and that Ishmael is the rejected one. But I think it's important that we realize that when God shows up and hears Hagar, he shows up and he tells her, your son will receive the first promise alongside Abraham's future son. And we don't get all that yet. Some of it we put together as the story goes on. But what he's telling her is, look, part of the promise that I made to Abram is that he will have many descendants, as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And he says, seashore? Oof, that's messy. On the seashore, he says, listen, that promise is for your son too because I'm the God that hears you. And then he tells her, listen, he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. And he's going to be opposed to those of his brothers and his brothers are going to be opposed to him. And as we read this, you kind of think, what a weird blessing that God is pronouncing on Ishmael. Uh, but there's two things that are going on here. One is that it's just the way that it's going to happen. There's going to be enmity between the son uh, of Hagar and the son of Sarai. There's no avoiding that. There's no avoiding that they're going to be contending for their father's love and blessing and inheritance. That's going to be part of their story. 
But the other thing is that if you're Hagar and you've been mistreated by Sarai and you're fleeing in the wilderness, and you're like, I don't want to go back. And God tells you, your son's going to be a wild donkey of a man and he's going to fight with his brothers forever and they're going to fight with him. Do you think there's a chance that Hagar went, that sounds kind of good. I kind of like the idea of my son picking on Sarai's sons and them being in opposition to one another. What that tells me is that they will have some standing that he won't just be abused by them, that he's going to be this strong man. And so she goes back. But before she goes back, she says to God, you are El Roy. You are the God who sees me. And so to this day, the writer of Genesis writes, the well where that happened is called Be'ir Lahoi Roy. The well is called the well of the living one who sees me. This well becomes famous because of this moment where God sees an Egyptian slave woman who is pregnant and fleeing the abuse and mistreatment of, uh, of her husband and, and former mistress. And when that's happening, God shows up and he sees her and he blesses her and he doesn't tell her she's not worthy and he doesn't tell her that she's not uh, going to have a promise and she doesn't, he doesn't tell Hagar that she has no future and that her son will be a servant and a slave forever. He shows up and says, I see you. I see you. And you're going to name your son, God hears you. And you're going to name the place where this is happening, the well of the living one who sees me. And, and Hagar and Ishmael become this testimony to God being present to people that everyone else rejects and forgets. And the story of Hagar and Ishmael becomes incredibly complicated as he does have animosity and enmity towards Isaac, who is the child of promise. But it tells you something in the story that Ishmael's name means God hears and Isaac's name means he laughs. They're born in very different circumstances, and Abram and Sarai are struggling to have the kind of faith in God that they ought to have. And even in the midst of the darkest part of this story, where Hagar is in the wilderness, and it's actually going to happen again, where she's out at the wilderness and she thinks that her son is going to die there later because he's so thirsty, and God shows up and provides for them yet one more time. Because God continues to see them in their moment of need. God makes promises, not just to Abram, but makes promises that include his second wife, Hagar. He's not going to be the one through whom all nations of the earth will be blessed. That's for Isaac, the son of Sarai. He's not going to be the one who, who has promised the land where all of these stories are happening and taking place. That's going to come through Sarai's son, Isaac. But he is going to have more descendants than his mother could ever count. Half of the first promise of Abraham's descendants is fulfilled through the servant woman, Hagar, and her son, God hears me, Ishmael. You know, God doesn't just see the rich and the wealthy and the powerful. God doesn't see just the people who are attractive and have all of the status. God sees all people and in all circumstances. And it's not just Hagar and her son Ishmael in the wilderness. We can look later to the story, and this is one of the stories we're going to talk about at camp a lot this week. 
to the story where Samuel goes to crown and anoint David as the next king over Israel. Samuel, uh, who goes to God and says, God, I, I really, my preference, Samuel says, is that my sons will take over once I die. Uh, Samuel has a couple of sons, and, and they're not very good leaders, but Samuel is the last judge of Israel. And he's this great leader, and it seems to him that a great leader's children should take over after he dies. And God says to Samuel, Samuel, your sons will not lead once you die. Saul has been anointed king, and Saul is good-looking, and he's tall, and he's a great leader of, uh, of the military, but Saul has started looking after his own interests and not after God's interests. And he says, so it's not going to be Saul that takes over, Samuel. Uh, it needs to be someone else. And so God tells Samuel to go to Jesse's house. And he goes to Jesse's house, and when he gets to Jesse's home, he says to the father, he says, listen, can I see your sons? God wants one of them to be the next king after Saul, and I'm here to anoint one of them as God's prophet and as Israel's judge. And, and God calls together, or Jesse calls his sons. He says, hey, get in here. At least he calls the ones that he thinks are good candidates. And so he gets the oldest ones, and he gets the strongest ones, and he gets the ones that when the Philistines attack are the ones that go and are soldiers when the Philistines attack. There's one he leaves in the field because he's just the shepherd. He's tending the sheep. He's the young one. He's the one that when the others are going to do battle with the Philistines, goes and shops for groceries to deliver to them so they're not hungry while they're at battle. That's David's job. And when Samuel shows up and he says, listen, I need to anoint the next king of Israel, Jesse says, well, let me get all the sons that you might be interested in. So in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 4, uh, Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. And they asked, do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice the Lord. Consecrate yourself and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. And he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. And so he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him, and he had him brought in. And he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel went on to Ramah. Samuel and Jesse keep thinking, this has to be the son. And God keeps saying, no, I'm looking for something else. 
and it's not the oldest, and it's not the strongest, and it's not the outer appearance. The story has the, the twist of saying, now David did happen to be really handsome anyways, but that's not why God chose him. Chose him because of his heart. David becomes renowned and known as being a man who is after God's own heart who throughout his life puts God's interests ahead of his own interests. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't mess up. He does mess up. Times when he thinks his plans and his timelines and his desires are greater than God's plans, desires, and timelines. When David takes things into his own hands and does things, gives in to temptation, gives in to what he wants and, and not what God wants, he gets in trouble. But even in those moments, he turns back to God. He turns back to the one who sees him. And while Hagar named God the God who sees me, David writes a psalm, Psalm 139. And I want you to hear how David describes the God who saw him, the God who knows him, the God who is always present to him. This is how David writes about the God who chose him and not his brothers. Psalm 139, David writes, You've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David's psalm tells us of one who knows how much God truly sees him. He says, you knit me together even when I was unborn. You know my innermost self. You've created me to do your work. Your enemies I hate because if they're your enemies, they're my enemies. But those who you love and bless, I, I want to be a part of that too. There's this idea for David that God doesn't just see him and know his name. God sees him. 
God knows him. The truest and most real part of David, God sees and God celebrates and God loves. This week, while we're at camp with our third through eighth graders, what we're hoping is that they will know what Hagar and Ishmael knew, that they will come to know what David knew, that God isn't somewhere far, far away ruling over the creation in the universe, disinterested in your life. God is present to you in your greatest moment of need. God sees you. He is the living one who knows you. And he knows you from the very beginning. Before the days of your life were written, he knew what was on all the pages. That's the God who sees you. That's the God who loves you. That's the God who gives you value because he is the one who created you. When you've been thrown out like yesterday's trash, when everything is against you, when everyone thinks that everyone else is better looking, taller, more strong than you, that's when God shows up and says, no, I see this one's heart. I see this one's potential. I see this one's value because God is Elroy, the one who sees us, who gives us value and knows us. If you're here today and you've never become one of God's adopted children, you need to know that he's not somewhere far, far away thinking about other things. God is present in this room and he knows everything about you and he always has and he always will. And that's what gives you value. So much value that his son died on a cross to save you so that you could come back to his presence. If you've never responded to that, today is a great day to do it. And in a second when we sing, you can do that. But at church family, I want to really ask that this week while we're at camp, do you not just pray for us to have fun and to be healthy? Do pray for those things. But I want you to pray that those kids will leave Camp Rock Creek with a lifelong and eternal knowledge that God sees them and knows them and loves them in a way that changes how they think about God's name for the rest of their lives. Please be joining with us at camp in prayer this week. If you need to respond this morning, come down and do it while we stand.